Welcome to the Lead More Podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer. The Lead More Podcast is the show where we sit down with leaders of today to help inspire and create more leaders for tomorrow. Because I believe the world, we need more leaders. And I want you to step up and be the next one. That's exactly what we do here in this episode where we sit down with a local leader here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Libby Screen. She is the campaigns director with the ACLU of South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. She is an advocate. She is a lawyer by trade. She used to be actually the assistant attorney general for the state of Iowa, and she's very smart. She's a great follow on Twitter, by the way, too. And in this episode, we sit down and talk about what do you do if you want to lead? If you feel that drive to lead, but you don't know what to do next, and you maybe don't think or you wonder if you can truly make a change. Libby used a word that it's not that you don't have a voice, it's that your voice isn't being heard. I love that line. So we talk about that, we examine her story and some of the important work that both ACLU here in our state, but also historically what the ACLU has done to lead and help those who maybe, like she said, whose others whose voice isn't being heard. So Libby's doing really important work. And I really enjoyed our conversation. So with that, let's get right to it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Lead More podcast. I'm really excited. Someone who's been on my guest list for a while, and we finally made it happen. Uh, Libby Screen, the campaign director at ACLU of South Dakota. Actually, the Midwest, right? You have a couple states. South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Wyoming, too. Okay, perfect. Um, how are you doing today, Libby? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. I love your bookshelf. We were talking about it. You got a great uh, Zoom background vibe. It's a real one. It's not a fake one. Yes, thank um, you. The books are real. <laughs> and I'm excited to have you on the show today. So uh, I think most people know, but like, just tell us there's, uh, you know, how many ACLUs are in the country and what is it? What is Why do ACLU, why do they exist? Yeah. So the ACLU um, is a national organization with affiliates in every single state. Uh, My region, my sort of chapter is the ACLU of South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Uh, And really, we are an organization that um, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to defend and advance the civil rights and civil liberties that are guaranteed to every single person uh, under both the U.S. and the state constitutions. Uh, We like to say that we dare to create a more perfect union, um, and that means including everyone and not leaving anyone behind. Yeah. So being... uh voice of reason, a watchdog, kind of looking out for people who maybe um, don't have someone in their corner. Yeah, absolutely. Holding the government accountable um, and making sure that we're continually trying to respect the rights of everyone, because sometimes that doesn't happen. Sure. Um, And everybody's job or industry or career or life has certainly changed in the last 18 months, two years. You guys in particular, I'm sure were quite busy last year. Uh, Mm -hmm. Talk us through how has your your job changed since, say, the last 12 months? Yeah, it, the pandemic hit us hard. Um, You know, a lot of our work happens in courts or the state legislature, but it also happens in communities pretty directly. And once the pandemic hit, that really changed our ability to go out and actually meet people or host events or be physically present um, in the community. So that has been, I think, incredibly tough, um, having to have that distance for safety reasons. You know, at first we were very heavily leaning into like Zoom events. And people, I think, liked those at the beginning of the pandemic. 
uh, I think is real. Yes, yes. So that has been probably our biggest challenge throughout this is trying to connect with people uh, while also being remote, which is incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and now we're doing it all over again, right? I know, Um, I know. (laughs) We'll get into more of your work. I want to hear a little bit about how you got here. So you uh, born and raised in Sioux City, right? And I am a Sioux City, Iowan through and through. All right. We built Sioux City, right? Uh, (laughs) On rock and roll. (laughs) um, A lawyer by trade, you went to Iowa Law School? Yep, yep. I went to the University of Iowa for um, both undergrad and law school. Originally thought maybe I would be a journalist. Uh, I feel like I wasn't quite ready to jump into the real world. Uh, So like a lot of folks, I fell into law school and I ended up loving it. Sure. That's cool. And so then uh, you also had a great, interesting job being the assistant attorney general for the state of Iowa. So then what brought you to our part of the world here in South Dakota? Yeah. So I practiced law in Iowa as an assistant attorney general for, I think, two-ish years living in Sioux City, my hometown. Um, You know, I always knew that I wanted to work in some sort of government, public service, nonprofit type role. Um, And I've always been a little bit obsessed with the ACLU. You know, you learn about those like foundational cases in journalism school and then in law school and seeing Mm -hmm. the way the ACLU has shaped this country was always deeply meaningful to me. You know, even when I didn't agree necessarily with the position the ACLU has taken. I really was attracted to the idea of standing on principle. Um, hmm. So it was always a dream. You know, I had applied for ACLU jobs, I think a couple in DC and that didn't work out. And I thought, oh, maybe someday. And then the role of policy director at the ACLU of South Dakota opened up and I was like, there's no way I'm getting this job, but I'll just, you know, I'll submit an application and see what happens. Uh, that was in 2014. And all these years later, here I still am. Interesting. So you was on your radar someplace that you were, you know, attracted to, looked up to, maybe saw as a, a dream job. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was kind of like had my eye on, you know, the openings and hoped that someday it would happen. And it did. So for so probably those like me who are a little less informed, what would be an example of like one of these pivotal foundational cases that the ACLU is really known for um, in, in, that you study in history? Um. I'll try to think of an older one. I think, uh, so around the time of the Vietnam War, there was the Mm -hmm. the Tinker case, which came out of a Des Moines school district. Uh, There were students who opposed the Vietnam War and were wearing black armbands. uh, And the school tried to force them not to wear those armbands. And the ACLU took on the case to defend free speech and they won. Um, And that helped protect (laughs) the rights of students to express their beliefs and opinions at schools. And I mean, even when you think, I guess, fast forward a little bit more of the modern era, um, the Obergefell case, which was the Supreme Court case that uh, brought marriage equality to the country, uh, Obergefell was actually an ACLU plaintiff. So some of these big seminal cases um, have either had ACLU representation or we've been a part of it in some way. That's great. I say we like I was involved in those cases. Well, that's okay. Well, that was going to be my follow up question. So how about one that you have like in your tenure that you feel very passionate about or some work that you're very proud of? Yeah, I mean, there there truly are a lot. But I think um, one of the more recent ones was the riot boosting case, which came out of South Dakota. Um, The state passed a law trying to essentially call anyone who was a protester a riot booster, which would allow liability to be put on an individual protester. If you were at a protest and a fight broke out or Mm -hmm. someone over there, you know, started a riot, 
you by being present there could be charged and become financially liable. And so could anyone else who um, maybe gave you gas money to get to the protest or, you know, was involved in some way, contributed in some way. Um, During the legislative process on that, we were very vocal in saying this will chill free speech. The way this is drafted is unconstitutional. It is a violation of the First Amendment. Um, The state passed the bill anyway, and so we sued and we won. And the court agreed that the way the bill was written, I guess bill then law, um, did chill free speech and was an impermissible violation of the First Amendment. So that was a really cool thing to see happen in real time. And like my world is far more the legislative work and the advocacy work. So to see, you know, oh, we couldn't stop it there, but then pass the ball over to the legal team and they take care of it was a really fun moment, I think, for for teamwork. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, So a big part of leadership is being willing to, you know, raise your voice and and, and stand up for what you believe in, even if it's maybe not popular or right, uh, or sorry, not right, but like popular or like perceived as as right or wrong. Um, so I've always admired that you know, online, you're, I think, a very, pretty vocal leader for the things that you're passionate about, probably both personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about doing that, especially in a state where um, sort of the stereotype is that we have to be Midwest nice, right? We don't know, we don't always maybe say what we truly believe. Let's just all kind of get along. And, and so how do you think about that when you're, uh, you know, part of your job is to like raise your hand and speak yeah. out? I think, God, I mean, if you had told me as like a middle school student or a high school student that this would be something I would be comfortable doing someday, I wouldn't have believed you. I was like the shyest kid. Um, but over time, I the more I read and the more I learned and the more I sort of developed as a person, the more, I guess, my, my sense of justice grew. And I know it's the sense that not everyone necessarily agrees with my perspective. Um, but I, in some ways, I, I feel that it's an obligation to not be quiet when I see things that I think are really problematic or harmful that I feel strongly about. Um, of course, it's a little bit easier online, which I yep. think can sometimes yep. be a problem. Good and right? bad, yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's very easy for people, including myself, to fire off a tweet and then walk away. Um, I think that something that has created in me maybe a sense of moderation is the fact that um, I have done a lot of lobbying or a lot of being in peer and testifying. And I think it's it's very hard to have animus towards someone when you're face to face with them. Right. So that's something I try to keep in mind is that. Would you say this if I was standing next to you? Exactly. Exactly. And if I wouldn't, then I feel that it's something I shouldn't say because that probably means it crosses the line. Sure. Um, You know, I do think I have had to develop a bit of a a rhinoceros skin and be a little tougher than maybe I actually am as a person. Um, Because when you have public opinions, people feel free to disagree with you. And it's just, it's something that, that I feel called to do, but I always try to keep in mind that like, I don't have to be a jerk about it. And there are some times when maybe my voice isn't needed in this conversation. So sitting back and being quiet is also part of it. Yeah. I think you're so right about that, that, uh, sort of, uh, the way that the vibe changes in the social media era, um, it's just inherently kind of almost wired to be combative. Uh, and, and we don't think about who's on the other end of that message. And then we also don't think about that. How many other people are, you know, you might be responding to one person, but how many other people see that message? Absolutely. You know, Twitter is just, it, it's inherently meant to be, you know, public discourse and seen by all. And mm-hmm. so, 
Um, very interesting. And you, I wanted to ask you, you talked about justice. So like, I, I think a lot of how do you, I guess the question was going to be, how do you decide when to raise your hand? But maybe the better question is like, what are your core about your personal core values that you decide this is a piece, this is a conversation I do need to enter into, or this is a topic I do need to raise my hand about. Gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I think I'm very sensitive to power dynamics. So when I see someone in power, whether we're talking about a whole government or maybe an individual taking power and using it to harm others or to oppress others or to deny them their rights, those are the kinds of things that really sort of trip my trigger and make me feel like, okay, like there is a dynamic going on here. And I, I mean, I certainly don't have a large platform, but like I have something of a reach by virtue of my job, um, by virtue mm -hmm. of being affiliated with the ACLU. So I see that as an opportunity to step in and try to level the playing field by using my voice, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I care very deeply about a lot of the issues that the ACLU works on. I think I'm particularly passionate about LGBTQ and two-spirit rights, in particular trans rights, um, criminal justice reform. I have family members who have been incarcerated and I feel like that has given me a perspective on the system um, that coupled with my legal training makes me feel like I should use my voice to call attention to why things aren't the way people assume they are or to sort of pull down the veil and ask for more nuanced discussions rather than that person's a criminal or we should lock that person up. Yep. Um, so those are the things I think that really drive my, my passion or my desire to speak out. Okay. That's great. And, and that made me think of a good question. So as a leader, power dynamics are an interesting element because if you have the CEO title or executive director title, or, or you just, you, you are inherently sort of given this level of power. And so how do you think about that? How do you yield that power both for good as a leader, but also recognizing you're not overstepping your bounds and using too much power? Yeah. Oh, I think that is such a good question. And it's really something that, that I have developed, I think, from the time that I started doing this work in 2014 through now. I think at the beginning, I had sort of a, maybe an arguably naive perspective of like being the voice for the voiceless, but truly people aren't voiceless, right? Yeah. They are, their voices are not listened to. And sometimes wielding your power means stepping back and creating an opportunity to get yourself out of the way so other people can speak to their needs. Um, and I think that is something that maybe I didn't fully grasp when I started doing this work. But over time, I have really recognized that like, more often than not, people don't need me to stand up and yell about the constitution, right? They need me to wield my power and my association with the ACLU to open doors or to get people into rooms in which they maybe wouldn't be invited in normally. And yeah. then I get to shut up and sit back and let other people advocate. Um, that's a, and I think more leaders should, should do that. Yeah, that's such a good answer. I think that's been the theme of the show is listen first, you know, speak second. And I think as leaders, we are often comfortable or even enjoy speaking first, right? We have opinions mm -hmm. and things to share, um, but when to pass the baton or like you said, give the, give a seat at the table. Um, that's a great, that's a great answer. Um, so in the context of South Dakota, how do you think of um, how can, so actually it doesn't even matter in South Dakota, how can somebody who wants to, who is ready to raise their hand, but maybe doesn't have the power, doesn't have the seat at the table, what can they do? I, I love that line of, they have their voice. They're just not being listened to or not being heard. 
what can they do? Like, what, what do you, what do you encourage someone who is listening to the show and say, I'm ready to lead, but I don't, I'm not given a chance. Yeah. I think step one is show up. Um, step two is don't wait for other people to pass you the microphone is to get up and take it. Right. I think when I think of like, like the activists or the community advocates who I've gotten to know over the years, the people who have made the biggest difference are not people who are like, I'm formally trained in advocacy or community organizing. It's people who have an interest and a passion and show up and say, okay, I'm here. I'm going to do what needs to be done. Um, You know, and that, that can be very daunting, I think, but I think easy ways to start or to sort of think about your own sphere of influence whether you know you're a high school student and you want to talk to your teacher about changing something, or you know you live in Sioux Falls and you want to start going to Sioux Falls um, school board meetings or city council meetings, mm-hmm. um, there are so many opportunities to just show up and watch what happens and then get engaged. Um, and I think sometimes people forget, especially when they think about like national politics, we don't think of like our congressperson as particularly easy to get a meeting with. And that's true. But when we're talking about state legislators or city council members, like these are folks who live in our community. Often they do not have like a secretary or an assistant who fields their calls. If you look on the legislature's website, the phone number's there, usually go to their personal cell phones. So you can call the person who represents you and say, hey, Senator, I'm so-and-so, I live in your district. I would like to talk to you about issue A, you know, whatever that thing is. And I think it... It takes practice. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you get and the more you start to see opportunities to make a difference. And I think I know your answer, but like, can you make a difference, right? Like, I think there's, you always hear like, call, call your Senator, call your Congressman and Congresswoman. Um, And I know like, I got, you know, I'm going to vote every time. I'm not going to skip out. I'm always going to make my vote heard, but like picking up the phone always feels like this isn't going to do anything, right? Like, have you seen it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I I am a firm believer that that does make a difference and that that the place where it makes the biggest difference is on the local and state level. Um, It really, truly shapes the way elected officials, maybe if not the way they feel about the topic, if I have seen that happen, but the way that they recognize their constituency and what they're seeing from their constituency. I mean, I just, I am such a believer in paying attention to what happens locally and getting involved locally because the decisions that are made locally are the ones that affect your life the most, right? Mm -hmm. The federal government is going to do what it's going to do. Congress will pass pieces of legislation that may affect your life, but what school your kids go to and what policies the school board has in place, those affect you way more. And so those are the easiest places to engage and they're the most neglected places. So- If anyone can take anything away from this, it's please call your elected official. Please, 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 because they they recognize it and it makes okay. That's great. Um, And maybe uh, I'd love to hear your your answer to as you've been close to this uh, space, both as a lobbyist and and in your work with programming. um, Do you let's see what was the line you used? Which we strive to to build a more perfect union. Is that what Mm -hmm. ACLU says? Okay. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that like? You know, I think sometimes the perception of politics is pretty jaded in the country, right? That it's, uh, you know, it's about money and it's, it's, they're not listening to the people and it's about power. And as you get closer to that and have been around it, do you feel more hopeful that the, that, you know, that government and the system and, and can, can help people, or do you feel more or less, yeah. less hopeful and kind of down and distraught about it? 
I mean, I have my moments, right? <laughs> Everyone does. But I do think fundamentally that that there is a sense of hope. I couldn't do this work if I didn't believe at my core that things were getting better and that we could force them to get better. Um, I think the time frame is, is the thing that people kind of have to adjust in their minds a little bit. You know, are things going to be fundamentally different in six months? Probably not. But my hope and my belief is that the things that I do today, 15, 20, 30 years from now, will have started a snowball effect that will lead to real tangible change because that's how all social change has happened, right? It is years and years of hard work, failing work by some standards, things that people don't see that lead to a moment of immense change, right? Whether you're looking at like the civil rights era or the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, those are all things that took so much work to make happen and it was impossible until it wasn't. And that is what I believe in. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that takes me to my next thought, which is uh, what have you learned as a leader about failure and about this? Like, how do you get back on the horse, right? When, um, you know, I think in my context of a small 20 person design agency, not only do I yield a lot of power, but like we can quickly see if we make a cultural change or, you know, change the way we work with our clients or it happens, you know, pretty swiftly. And, and then we see the results. Um Whereas like you said, the timeline is long. It's littered with a lot of failure and not, not in like the sense that you made mistakes, but just the roadblocks. So what have you learned about that as a leader? Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time, right? There are roadblocks all the time. There are frustrations. There are things that we hope are going to make a big change and that we don't really see happen. Um, And and I think that is the nature of civil rights work is that you just keep going, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that you're tireless. Like I, I always find it a little weird when people describe like advocates as being tireless. I'm very tired. <laughs> I get very tired. So like while you're struggling through all of this and pushing forward, I think it's also really critical to take breaks. And whether that means, you know, a day of paid time off here, whether it means a vacation, you know, every year after the legislative session, I try to take at least one or two weeks off to to recognize that while the work is very important, it is also not everything, right? It is not who I am. It is what I do. It is what I care about. Um, But I'm also a person who, who can take a break sometimes, you know, I remember one of my mentors, I don't even remember. Yeah. Had described, it's kind of cheesy, but the idea of like, if you've ever sang in a choir, right. And you're all singing together, but sometimes you run out of breath and you have to pause and take a breath in, but that's okay because the rest of the choir is still singing. Um, and that is something I I've tried to really implant in my mind as, as, you know, take breaks, try hard when you fail, it's okay. Just keep going, but don't burn yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think I'll just send you the link. We had a woman, uh, from Nashville, Jen Bailey, who has an organization that's called about healing the healers. And so they work with advocacy folks like yourself or a Tanisa who's been on the show who do work tirelessly to say, Hey, when do you step back? And when do you, when do you get a break? How do you treat yourself? Right. So, um, good lesson there for, for leaders. Um, okay. So I want to ask a few questions about, uh, about you and just get to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an awesome bookshelf behind you. I don't know if you're a big reader. I assume you are in your, in your industry, um, professionally, certainly maybe personally. So what's a book that you recommend people most often that you, you tell people to read? Yeah, I love to read. It's probably my favorite thing to do. Um, So it's hard to pick one, but 
I think a book that I've read recently that is fiction, but that felt very meaningful to me. Um, it's called The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Okay. Klune. Um, and it's this beautiful kind of offbeat, whimsical story about radical empathy and the power of that and also standing up to sort of amoral bureaucracy, right? Or systems that don't necessarily see right versus wrong. Um, and I read it after the legislative session this year and it was just, it really like, Oh, it gave me feelings and it reminded me of like the power of fiction and the power of literature to yeah. kind of boil down these very human experiences that can translate and resonate across a variety of situations. Yeah. Clearly you connect with that character. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Cool. Um, we talked about the idea of, you know, taking time for yourself. And so mm-hmm. a question I've asked all these leaders on the show, especially during a pandemic uh, how do you unplug? How do you clear your head? What, 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 uh, yeah. yeah. What's a hobby, I guess. Aside from reading, um, I try to do anything that like gets me as far away from my phone as I can be. Um, sometimes that means, you know, taking walks around the neighborhood just to clear my head. Um, I also really love cooking. Like cooking right. is something that like, you have to be very present for it and you sure. have to be very physically there for it. So it kind of helps take me out of my mind um, and focus on what's in front of me. Um, and then you get sense. to eat delicious snacks. So yeah, win, win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You said your husband is a big baker before mm-hmm. we hit record. So that's always good too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So we asked this question when we hire at Lemonly, mm-hmm. uh, and I could see a few answers potentially from you. So we say, what's your superpower? The thing that you do best, probably better than anybody else to brag about yourself. So this, this might be a weird answer, but I really think it might be my stubbornness, which I know is kind of a, you know, a negative word, but when I have my mindset on something and I think something is really wrong, I kind of don't let it go. And I think that that has been a huge asset in the type of work that I do. Um, I never really thought of myself as like gritty, you know, grit was a big thing that people were talking about a while back. Yeah. yeah. I was talking to my husband. I was like, I'm not, I don't have no grit. And he kind of looked at me, he was like, you worked at the ACLU in South Dakota for seven years. He's like, Libby, you have grit. And I was like, oh, is that what that is? Um, <laughs> and I think like stubbornness is another way to say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I fail a lot, but I just keep going when I'm really passionate about something. And I think I would say that would be a, th- a throughput of this episode in clearly in your work and in your, in your history of your career. Do you think that's something you were born with or where did you get that? I don't know. I mean, my parents would probably say I'm stubborn. Um, but I think like, like they have been such wonderful models for me about, like, I remember even as a kid, like if you'd make fun of another kid and my mom heard you, she'd be like, Hey, you don't say that about other people. You don't know what it's like to be someone else. Mm. And I think that that was, that is something that made me who I am today. So they modeled that and you remembered it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was joke. Uh, we had when my daughter is five and a half was born. She was breech uh, for about twenty weeks, and her mom's tummy. And so she had to have a C My wife had a C section, and I remember the midwife saying, "Oh, you know, she's gonna be a, she's gonna be a stubborn kid. She's gonna be a determined kid." And you're like, "Well, come on, she's just she's a baby, right? She's like yeah. 20, 22 weeks pregnant." Um, and it, it seems to be true. Like yeah. you know, she's like she's like she'll be a leader. She'll be a CEO. Right? Uh-huh. She'll be a and so I don't know, some of that, I always kind of wonder the question of are leaders born or are they, yeah. are they made? Right. And yeah. I think the answer is a little bit of both, but um, that's cool to hear that it was, you're exposed to that sort of justice or, or yeah. 
kind of the golden rule. It sounds like at yeah. a young age. Yeah. I think they definitely encouraged it. I, I used to love as a kid watching cooking shows with my mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I vividly remember we watched an episode of Emerald, Emerald Lagasse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he boiled a lobster and I was just like, he killed that lobster. I don't know where that, I mean, I love animals. Maybe that's where it came from. And so I wrote a letter to him about how wrong that was. And my mom never mailed it. She was like, mm-hmm, oh, yeah, no. we'll do that. Oh yeah, she told me years later, she's like, no, I didn't mail that. But I was like, oh, like I think back to things like that. And I'm like, I guess I have been this way for a while. I was waiting to hear about what Emerald said back to you. <laughs> yeah, but... right. <laughs> no, didn't no, get that far. Didn't but... get that letter? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we like to learn, you know, I think a big, big takeaway of the show is that leaders sometimes aren't, um, they don't raise their hand. Often they're like nudged or encouraged by others mm-hmm. to step up. So who are the leaders that have influenced you, whether you know them or you've studied them, just yeah. the people who have impacted your life? There have been a number, I think, of, of colleagues that I've gotten to know at the ACLU National Office who have really been champions for the work, but also, I guess, personal mentors of mine that I've learned so much from. Um, whether it's, you know, sort of the more intellectual, here's how this case law works or, or more, um, here's how to lead that I've, I've really taken a lot, I think, away from the people I've been lucky enough to work with. Um, and when I think more locally, the person who has such a different leadership style than me and just a different perspective on life, but who I deeply admire would be my friend, Susan Williams, who started the mm-hmm. transformation project, um, which is a nonprofit that helps transgender kids. Uh, and transgender adults in South Dakota. And she's like the most positive human being I've ever met. And my like baseline is not optimism. And I love working with her because she comes from a completely different perspective. And it really helps me um, try to keep in mind that not everything is terrible all the time, right? Like I just, I love working with people who are so different from me. So she's someone who really stands out as a leader um, and a mentor. Do you think, are you just by default, maybe less optimistic or does the work sort of make you, do you get kind of jaded, I guess? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both, but probably more of a default for me, if I'm being honest, it's just kind of the way I am. (laughs) Cool. Um, Well, that's awesome. That's a good list. Susan seems like someone we should have on the show sometime. So absolutely. She's a joy. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation, Libby. It's fun to uh, connect and, and, and talk about these topics. Clearly, you are a leader in our community, in our state. And we thank you for, like, uh, I don't want to use the word tireless because I know you probably, like you said, are tired, but yeah. always getting back on the horse and fighting for those who maybe whose voices aren't being heard. Yeah. Um, how can somebody, if they either like, you know, they want to get involved, they see something they want to, they want to raise their hand about, they're, they're unsure about how can the ACLU happen, help them, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, our website is aclusd.org, and we actually have a really awesome list of like advocacy resources that aren't specific to any topic to kind of walk people through, you want to get engaged, here are some options, here are some things to think about. Um, so I would highly, highly recommend that. Um, I'm also pretty active on Twitter. So uh, my handle is at Libby screen. Um, last name is spelled S-K-A-R-I-N. Uh, and our social media team at the ACLU is fantastic. So we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and you can find us everywhere. Yeah, you do a good job there. So thanks. Cool. I'll, I'll pass that on. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much. And uh, you know, keep up the great work. Thanks for coming yeah. on the show. This was really fun. Thank you. All right. And that is today's episode of the Lead More podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. 
Remember on Apple, you can subscribe on Spotify. You can follow, you can leave us a five-star review that really, really helps. And I appreciate if those of you who have done that helps other people just find the show and, and discover lead more and choose whichever episode, you know, they love to listen to. So send it to your friends and as always take care and be well.